Immediately, the urgency of Jesus, we are in the home stretch, chapter 10, 16 chapters in Mark. We're headed in the home stretch now. And what I want to do is kind of go back a little bit uh, before today uh, and uh, let you see a pattern developing. And so we got these disciples, and they've got some opportunities to have a defining moment in their relationship with God. And their absolute major failures every time they're given the opportunity. All right, so here's the pattern. Jesus gives a passion prediction, and then after he predicts his passion on the cross, they have a misunderstanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, followed by a deeper teaching by Jesus to get the point of cross. So there's a proclamation misunderstanding, and a deeper teaching every time. Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, three passion predictions that follow that pattern. You'll remember the first. Remember, it was Peter who was asked, who do people say that I am? And he is, of course, the king of whatever is in my mind, is going to come out my mouth. Remember Peter? And he says, you're the Christ. And this time, Peter gets it right, right? But not really. He doesn't really understand the implications of discipleship. He doesn't understand the meaning of Messiah. So what does Jesus do? He unpacks the meaning. He says, yeah, you get that right, Peter, but I'm going to have to be rejected and killed and rise again. And remember Peter said, God forbid it. He rebukes Jesus. This will not happen on my watch. No way. That's not part of the plan, Jesus. What was Peter's plan? Pride and honor, and glory, and success, and fame, and wealth when this king would come into his kingdom, he gets it wrong. So Jesus goes into that deeper teaching mode that I talked about. He says, listen guys, if anyone would would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me in a crucified life. He says, "Forever, whoever seeks to save his life in this world, this, this life that we make for ourselves, if, you, if that's your prime possession, you're going to lose your life in the kingdom. But whoever's willing to lose his life and lose his idols in this world, you will gain your life, life eternal. He says then, for what would it profit a man to gain the whole entire world and yet forfeit his soul? It's a deep teaching. First passion prediction. Second passion prediction, you remember that? The disciples had just failed miserably to deliver a young boy from demon possession. Remember that? And uh, the teaching follows. Jesus says, I must be handed into, uh, delivered to the hands of men, killed, and on the third day rise. Second passion prediction. What do they do? Immediately they misunderstand Jesus. They began to argue about who's going to be greatest in this kingdom. Isn't that phenomenal? I mean, Jesus is talking about pouring out his life and his soul for the sins of the world, walking the way of humility, to be stripped and beaten on our behalf, to take the sins of the world on himself. And all he can think about is, who's going to be greatest when that happens? You see how crazy it is? So Jesus, in this misinterpreted understanding of discipleship, once again teaches them the deeper message. He says this. He says, uh, they began to argue about who's going to be the greatest, and then you see the pattern, and he keeps on teaching. He says, 
Those who are first shall be last, and those who are last shall be first. If anyone would be first in my kingdom, he must become last and servant of all. He must be a servant, pouring himself out like I'm about to do. So the same pattern. And today we're in chapter 10. You'll see that pattern in the third passion prediction. Let's look at that. Pick up at verse 33. Jesus is teaching them. Remember chapter 10, verse 33. He says, boys, we're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death. They will mock him and spit on him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Can it get any more plain than that? This is the prime directive. This is gospel mission number one, that I would pour out myself. Listen to those words. Will be delivered. They will condemn me to death. They will mock me and spit on me. I'm going to pour out myself for your souls. And immediately, the misunderstanding. Look at verse 35. The Zebedee boys come on the scene, James and John, and they have the audacity to ask Jesus after this passion prediction, uh, can we have places of honor? And, and notice the way that they ask. I, I love it. Have you ever had a child, maybe a son, come up to you and say, Dad, before you say anything, I want you to say yes to what I'm about to ask you. <laughs> of course, and they play the same game with Jesus. They said, Jesus, we want you to, to say yes to what we're about to ask. And in verse 33, they ask him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in glory, in glory once again. They wanted the same thing that Peter wanted. They wanted to be great. They wanted glory. They wanted fame. It's all about them. And it's a universal problem. It's a universal problem. Who's going to be greatest? And you don't believe it's a universal problem? Let me sit on your right hand as CEO let my brother sit on your left hand as vice president. Look at verse 41. You'll see the universality of the problem. The other ten disciples are indignant at James and John. They are livid that they asked that question of Jesus. Why is that? Is it because they were so humble and so cross-filled that, that they had become servants and they were willing to become last and and why in the world can't Peter, I can't James and John get the message? Nope, wasn't that at all? Wasn't that at all? They are ticked off because James and John beat them to the punch. They asked the very thing that they wanted. Suddenly they had, they were, they're angry because they asked the question that everybody else wanted to ask. Let us sit in your glory. So once again, Jesus goes into that deeper teaching. Look at verse 42. You got it all wrong, boys. The Gentiles, the unbelievers, the pagans, yeah, they want fame and authority, and they lord it over other people when they have fame and authority. They're prideful. They're not godly. He said, but in verse 43, it shall not be so with you, my disciples. In fact, he says, whoever will be great among you, must be like a servant to other people. And whoever would be great among you must become slave to those around you. The Son of Man, he says, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I pour out myself for you on the cross. Can't you follow me and pour out yourself for others? Now, 
we've all got the propensity to pride, vainglory, selfishness, self-protection. Selfless living does not come natural. So I'm going to ask you, how do we get rid of that propensity? It's universal. It was in the lives of the disciples. How do we embrace words like, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The first shall be last and the last shall be first. You shall deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. How do we get there? How do we do that? Well, it's clear to me that first of all, you got to accept the lordship of Christ. I went through probably 20 years of my life in the church, just like you are, and yet there were parts of my heart and soul and life that, that were precious to me, and I wasn't going to give them to Jesus until he becomes Lord of all, all your life. You'll never understand these teachings on discipleship. So the first thing is conversion. Give all of yourself, all of, give your children, give your spouse, give your friends back to God. Give your time, your talent, and your money, your treasure, as an offering, a thank offering to God. That's where it begins. And then if, if you give of yourself to God as Lord and Savior, you receive that. Ezekiel 36, 26 says that God will work in your heart. It says, I, God says this, I will give you a new heart when you do that. And I will put within you a new spirit. And I will take your heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. Heart of selfishness into a heart of selflessness. I will do that work within you. So that's the first promise of the gospel. Uh, the second step is, is, is stewardship. Stepping out, having a defining moment when you're going to say, I trust you, Lord, with my finances. And I know you're saying, well, the preacher's supposed to say that, right? It's kind of stewardship time. No, it's true. It's absolutely true. You see, Paul says that there is a war within us. He says that there, we receive the Holy Spirit. It's in us if we're Jesus's, if, we're, if he's our Lord and Master and Savior. But there's the old Adam as well, the old flesh, and it's selfish, and it's prideful, and it wants what it wants. And we got to be killing that so that the Spirit may live Paul says in Galatians 5.17, For the flesh craves what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are opposed to one another. There's a war so that you do not do what you want, Paul says. There's a war. There's a war. And, and stewardship has the effect of not only reminding us that God is faithful and just and will come through, but also it begins to break down the old Adam and to put in us generous hearts for the things of God, to turn the heart of stone into the heart of flesh. When Leslie and I started tithing, giving a full 10%, that's what that word tithe means, a tenth, is the old English word for tenth. People throw that around all the time, but that's God's minimum expectation of a Christian disciple. So when we started moving into the tithe range and sacrificially giving to the things of God, it began to work a work in our lives. We began to see the faithfulness of God in spite of the fact that we didn't know how ends were going to be made, how we were going to make ends meet. We we're in seminary at Duke, and she's a teacher, but we're not making much money, but God is faithful, and he always came through, and it began to make us trust in him more and more. Jesus said it like this, where your treasure is, 
there your heart will be as well. You can look at your wallet or your checkbook or maybe your bank statement and find out where your idols are. You can find out where your heart is, where your investments are. Stewardship helps us to break the stronghold that money and financial stuff has in our lives and helps us to become more and more generous to others as we pour ourselves out for the sake of other people toward mission and ministry and and building God's kingdom and giving praise and honor and worship to him with ourselves, our souls, our bodies, and our finances. It all happens in a defining moment. Have you had a defining moment like that in your life? Remember Abraham? He had that. Remember he and Sarai had prayed long and hard for that baby boy. Finally he came. Much laughter and much much ups and downs in his relationship with God. Remember twice he tried to sell off Sarai as his sister and not his wife for self-protective reasons. You can take her. She's my sister. Go ahead. He's self-interested. He's self-absorbed. He wants to protect himself. And then one day God says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love, up to the top of Mount Moriah. And I want you to get some sticks and I want you to sacrifice him for me. And he bound his son and he lifted a knife and was faithful to God. It was a defining moment. He said, God, I'm going to trust you in this. And God provided for him a ram, a sheep, a ram in the thicket. It was God's grace. Your son whom you love, you were faithful in saying, I'll give it to you, God, if that's what you want. And not only did he not have to sacrifice Isaac, but he got Isaac back. You see, the idea is that Isaac had become an idol, had become the focus of their lives. And suddenly he says, now, God, you're the focus. And so on that mountain that day, Abraham called that mountain, the Lord shall provide. And on that moment, the Lord provided. And his life was changed. It was a defining moment. You see, it's that way with our money. When we're willing to step out and know that the Lord will provide and trust that God is Jehovah Jireh, the provider of everyone. Happened to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus climbs a tree. It says that he is a lover of money, but he's seeking Jesus. And when Jesus goes home with him that day, he says, Zacchaeus, salvation has visited your house this day. And what does Zacchaeus do in response to the gospel? He becomes a disciple. I will repay everyone that I've defrauded fourfold. And lo and behold, I'm going to give half of everything that I got to the poor. That's discipleship, pouring himself out for the good of others in mission and ministry. And what was the defining moment for those disciples? It was Pentecost, when their hearts of stone became hearts of flesh. They became generous people. All the disciples of the first century church put all their money in in a collective um, um, treasury so that the poor and the needy, the widow and the outcast would be provided for within the church of God. No longer were they self-interested, position and power and wealth. Now they became disciples of Christ Jesus. What is your defining moment? If you've not had one in your life, step out. Give Jesus all of who you are, including your finances. God says in Malachi 3.10, he says, bring a tithe into my storehouse and test me in this. The only time in the entire Bible that God said it's okay to test me. Test me and see that I don't provide for all your needs if you'll bring a tithe into my storehouse. And if God's not faithful, 
at the end of a month or two months or six months, go back because he's not been faithful to his word. But 10%, test me in this, tithe and see if I'm not faithful. 